My prayer this morning, Father, is a simple one, that you would give me a heart for your word and a word for our hearts. Amen. I want you to go down a little road with me today. It's the road of judgment. Not judgment like eternal judgment, but guess what? We judge each other all the time. We judge people on whether they use Apple or Android. We judge people whether they cheer for the Dallas or for the Eagles. We judge people on what kind of car they drive. Is it domestic? Is it foreign? Is it electric? Is it hybrid? Is it gas? We judge people on where they shop. Are you a Walmart shopper or a Target shopper? Or, my goodness, let's date ourselves. A Kmart or a Sears shopper? Do you judge people on where they get their burgers? People have strong opinions. Burger King, McDonald's, Wendy's, Five Guys, Wi-Fi. Have you tried the new place down here, BurgerFi? Everybody has an opinion. And we judge people when they don't have the same opinion we do. Now, I actually think this is a godly opinion, but some people drink Coke and others are going straight to hell. You know, that's, that's the way it should be, right? We judge people by their place of worship. Where do you go to church? Oh, well, we meet here. We meet here. We're in the auditorium at the high school. We judge people by their house of worship, by the place of work or the kind of work they do. We, we judge people by which Jersey Shore they like. Are you an Atlantic City, an Ocean City, a Brigantine, a Cape May, a Wildwood Crest? We have opinions about people by which shore they pick. And I want to add something to this discussion, believe it or not. There are things we judge people about over which they have no control. Eye color, height. Did you know that taller people for the same job make more money than shorter people? They've done research on this. We also judge them on the shape of their body. Taller, skinnier people make more money than short, fat people. I find that very upsetting. We judge people by their accent. Oh, you have a lovely accent, we say. Or, we know where they're from. We judge people on their education or their parentage or their state. Did you know that people judge us because we live in New Jersey? I've grown up in New Jersey. I, I love parts of New Jersey. And yes, I eat pork roll for breakfast. None of that Taylor ham stuff. We judge people for everything. I still have more on my list. We judge them for their parentage. We judge them for their medical issues. Think about this. Remember when we were kids and a kid got glasses and we teased them? Now kids get glasses. They're like proud of it. Like, How did that happen? And if a girl had glasses and braces, well, she was undateable back in the 60s. Like, ugh. what do they call it? Brace face, metal mouth. Remember all those things? We judged the girl because she had enough money to fix her teeth. What is up with that? We judge people for things over which they have no control. And yet, did you ever think that over many things we have no control? Now, I, I sometimes hear a little chuckle in the morning because your pastor suffers from a little bit of obsessive compulsive personality disorder. And when I go in in the morning, 
I put my razor here, and I put my brush here, and I put my Q-tip for cleaning my ears here. As a musician, I'm very meticulous about getting the wax out of my ears. I clean them every day. I want to be able to hear. And over here, I put my toothpaste, I put my tooth polish to keep them white, and I put my beard oil, and they are in the same spot every morning. And this little voice laughs. And I've been told that it's cute. That's usually on a good day, right? But I need everything exactly where it is. Why? Because there's a process I go through. Yes, I picked this out yesterday. My, my suit. Why? So I don't want to think about it in the morning. And you, you do stuff like this, I hope. Then you go to work and you do the same thing every day. Some of us used to slice lettuce, and some of us cut tomatoes, and some of us teach little children to sing. And you do the same thing. I had a person to me, they're about 25, 26 as we go, is the rest of my life going to be this monotonous? And I smiled, and I said, yes. Maybe you've seen the meme. It says the worst part about being adult is choosing what to have for dinner every night until you die. Remember when you were little and somebody else told you what was for dinner? That doesn't happen anymore. And if you're empty nesters like Vicky and I, what do you want? I don't know. What do you want? What are you hungry for? I don't know. What are you hungry for? And then one of us lists all the restaurants in the area to see if, if one of them might tickle the, the hunger of the other one. And usually somebody says in this discussion, I miss living in Voorhees. There were more options. But even when I lived in Voorhees, we still had the same discussion. There's a monotony to life. And it's not always a bad thing, but I want you to hear about this. The woman at the well was probably not unattractive. I want you to hear that. How do we know that? She had five husbands and a new boyfriend with whom she was living with. And uh, usually ugly people don't get offers like that. I just like to... Toss that out there. She was not unattractive. And I'd like to say she was probably a good homemaker. Because you don't get somebody to enter into a relationship and share a house with you unless they are at least a little bit tidy. But what didn't she have? She didn't have the ability, perhaps, to produce children. And those were the two things that a woman in Jesus' time... Uh, gained their, their self-worth out of. They ran a good house and produced children. And they didn't have all these fancy doctors who could do blood tests and hormone tests and examine your fallopian tubes and count your eggs and all that stuff. They believed that if a woman was unable to produce offspring, it was her fault. It was never the man's fault. And for some reason, she was cursed by God. So walk this road with me. We're going to use what my preaching professor called our God-given gift of imagination. But I, I remember when my sister was little, and your parents used to have a pile of magazines. I don't know if they have that anymore. There's always a pile of magazines, and she and her friends would get out the scissors, and they would cut out their future husbands. Did you ever do this? And they put it on poster board, and then they would, their dogs and their cats and their kids, and they would build these imaginary families. And then they might plan their wedding. I'm going to have this, and you'll be my best lady. And they, they did these elaborate dreams of what life would be. And then life wasn't. 
Now, I don't know if they had magazines. I do know if they had magazines in the first century. They didn't, but they had imaginations. And this beautiful little girl had a plan. I'm going to get married, and I'm going to have children. I'm going to raise them, and I'm going to love them, and I'm going to hold them close, and we're going to build a family. And she got married, and the children never came. And her husband did what they called a writ of divorce. He got a piece of paper, and he said, no children, no marriage. And he signed the paper and he gave it to her and husband number one was gone. But she was still attractive and still a good homemaker, maybe a good conversationalist. And another guy said, you know what? I'll give you a spin. And he married her and he built a home with her. And she ran a nice home and she was a good conversationalist and not hard to look at. And the children never came. And he wrote her a paper. We're not married anymore. And it happened five times. Five times. The dream was raved, waved in front of her. You can have what you've always wanted. And the dream never came. It gets worse. The town in which she lived decided that there was something wrong with her. Nobody wanted to talk to her. Nobody wanted to be with her. She had no friends. She had no support, which is why she brought her water jug to the well in the middle of the day, not in the morning. Now, I, I know about where you work, but when we're all coming to the parking lot as teachers, everybody has their big glass of something. Mine is usually unsweet tea, Right? And they've got their coffees and your bag and your lunch and we're all coming in together and how was your night and how was your weekend? And there's a, a fellowship that takes place before you get down to the business of doing whatever your business is. And that's what the women in Sychar did. They all went up to the well at the same time and they scooped each other's water and they laughed about their kids and they told funny stories. And she was not welcome. And I want you to hear, and I, I never looked at it this way until I read a book called The Most Misunderstood Women of the Bible. It's a very interesting book. It was written by a theologian and a playwright. And the theologian drew a picture of what the parameters were, how, how the woman at the well could have gotten there. And then the playwright wrote the story to go with it. Very fascinating book. And the Bible's pretty clear about telling us what a person's sin is. And if she was a harlot, they would have told us she was a harlot. And if she was a whore, they would have told us she was a whore. And all they said was, she's a woman with five husbands and the guy she's living with now is not. There's only one sin in that sentence. And that's the out-of-wedlock life she's in right now. The other five were probably legal and up, up uh, righteous. Her community has ostracized her. Her family of origin has probably ostracized her. Five different husbands have ostracized her. And they're back to that monotony. Every day, after everybody else gets water, she carries her water jug by herself to the well. And she probably says, Am I going to have to do this for the rest of my life? Will nobody ever reach out in community for me? Will anybody want to be my companion? Now, you may say, and, and I would have this conversation with Vicki, I'll go with you. 
But men didn't collect water back then. It was not a manly thing to do. But yes, I, I would probably say, I'll go with you. But her husband didn't say that. So every day, she had to walk by herself to the well, reminded that all of the dreams that she had had never come to fruition. That is a lonely, awful place to be. And then there's this stranger at the well. And he is Jewish. Now, how do we know he's Jewish? Jewish men had a certain way of dressing and cutting their hair that was different from Samaritan men. Um, I, Vicky and I are planning on going to Europe this summer, and I've been to Europe several times and in the summer. And there was a list of things. It was a really cool article on things that Americans do to, to, to let people blaringly know they're American. And one of them is we, we, we wear shorts like we're going to the beach. And the European people don't wear shorts to all those other places. And I'm thinking, but I'll be hot and miserable. I wear shorts all summer long. But it wasn't that hard for her to figure out that this was not a Samaritan man. And you've heard the sermons. Jews and Samaritans didn't talk. They didn't mix. They believed in sort of different things about God, but Samaritans didn't recognize Jerusalem, and the Jews thought the Samaritans were half-breeds. We don't need to go down that road. They didn't get along. It's all you need to know. Like people in North Jersey and people in South Jersey. You got your Taylor ham, you got your pork roll, and there's a big line down the middle. And I tell the young people that when I was a kid, you knew exactly where a person was on that continuum because of their area code. Everything north of Trenton was 201 and everything south was 609. And you knew if you met a girl and she was a 201, you'd have to find a reason to explain her to your friends. Because we didn't go up there in North Jersey. Samaritans and Jews didn't meet together. So then Jesus calls her on her behavior. And I want you to hear this. There was no finger wagging. The Son of God, the perfect Messiah, who came to save the world, could have stood up and in his best godly voice said, Sinner! Of course, he could say that to any one of us. But he could have said it to her, You're living in sin. He didn't say it. He just let her know the truth. I know exactly who you are. I know why you're here. I know why you're here by yourself. And she says, he knew everything about me. Because he knew all that stuff we just talked about. It resonated with her. And I want you to hear, if, if you're resonating with the woman at the well, she admitted three things. First, she admitted the truth. She could have argued with Jesus. But, 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 but. And many of us do that. We argue with God. The word of God says, do this, and we have reasons why that applies to everybody else, but not to us. She admitted the truth. She accepted the truth. Then she advertised the truth. And if you're taking notes, that's three points on the woman at the well. She accepted the truth. I am a sinner. I need help. And then when she found help, she told everybody about it. And the whole town, we're told, recognized Jesus as the Messiah. Now, if you're on the other side, and you're looking at this from Jesus' perspective, because those of us who are saved, 
have a responsibility to help to seek and save the lost. Jesus shared the good news, saved a lost sheep, and sent the sheep to find other sheep. So there's really, in my opinion, two ways to look at this story. One is if you are lost and broken and at a well by yourself with nobody there, Jesus is looking to meet you. If you have been to the well and you were lost and now you're part of the community of faith, you're part of the body of Christ, it's your job to go look for lost sheep. It is our job as the body of Christ to bring the sheep into the fold so that they can meet the good shepherd. Now, if I were going to name last week's sermon, this week's, and next week's, and I won't give that away yet, I might label these conversations with Jesus. Nicodemus had a conversation with Jesus. The woman at the well this week is having a conversation with Jesus. And like I said, I won't give it away, but next week is a third conversation. What did Nicodemus and the woman at the well have in common? I think that's an interesting question. They both had a plan for their life. And the plan didn't work. Now, I know that all of your plans work. I know that every plan you have ever laid out has come to fruition, and you're thinking, that poor woman, I just don't understand why hers didn't work. And some of you are thinking, Pastor, (laughs) just open wider and stick the other foot in your mouth. Because we've all had plans that don't work. Nicodemus said, if I build my house on the rock of God's word and these 613 laws then I will be happy and healthy and fulfilled. And he wasn't. And the woman said, if I build my house on the rock of a family and children and my hope for the future and my progeny is a fancy word for generations to follow. And it didn't work. What are you building your life on that is not bringing you what you thought you would get. And into these conversations comes Jesus. And what did Jesus do? Jesus listened. He didn't just listen to find something to respond. He listened to their heart. He listened to their life. He listened to their situation. So he listened and Jesus heard them. I can't tell you how many times I have couples in therapy and and they're like, they just don't hear me. And then the other person will repeat back what they just said. That's not the point. In fact, Gary Smalley teaches couples what he calls drive-through listening. We are more patient with the person messing up our McDonald's drive-through order than we are with the person we promise to spend the rest of our life with. Uh, That's a number three with a large Diet Coke? No, it's a number two with a small Diet Coke. Do you want the chicken, the grilled, or the fried? I want the... Right? And we're not shouting, why can't you get my order? We're very patient with the person at the drive-thru. And yet, we pick somebody to spend the rest of our life with, and we fold our arms and we say, we've been together 10, 20, 30 years. You should know. And the other person going like, no, I don't know. Jesus listened and he heard. And hear this, he saw. He saw a woman at the well in the heat of the day without any companionship 
and he saw her brokenness and he saw her loneliness. Sometimes, church, we're very good at getting that far. We listen, we hear, and we see. But what's the next thing he offered? I was reading a book by Rob Bell called Everything Spiritual, and one of the most exciting events he ever did with his youth group is he got them all together on a Saturday, and they went to a part of town that was not a good part of town, and they knocked on people's doors, and they said, we're from this church, what do you need? And the first door they knocked on was a young mother with a baby. She burst into tears. She said, I have no formula for the baby. In fact, I've been mixing sugar and water just so the baby would be filled. And the kids came down from the stoop and they emptied their pockets and they went out and they bought the mom formula for the baby. Sometimes we're too busy hearing, listening, and seeing that we're not offering the help that God has prepared us to do. He said that happened like 25 years ago, and he still has kids talk about it. Jesus listened, he heard, he saw, he offered, and hear this, he did not condemn or convict. I love the church sign that says, uh, lead us not into temptation because we can find it on our own. If I were to ask each of you, and I'm not going to, do you know what your personal sin is? Very few people go, oh, I have no personal sin. We've all got it. We all know what it is. God never needs to stand over us and wag the finger and say, you are not aware of your sin. We all are. He knew that that woman needed a savior And he became a savior for her. In fact, this is the first time in scripture that Jesus says clearly, I am the Messiah. It's the first time. This woman, this Samaritan woman, has the longest conversation recorded with Jesus. And she's the first person that he says, yes, that's exactly why I'm here, to seek and save the lost. So there's three possible responses for this, and I want you to work with me. The first one is this. You could say, before you get out the back door and get to your favorite seat at your favorite restaurant for lunch, well, that was a nice story. I wonder what he'll preach on next week. Or you could respond looking for those around you that might be in need. We are called to seek and save The lost. The research says that 4% or less of people who come to church come because of the guy in front. 4% of you are here because of something I did or said. That means 96% of here because of nothing I did or said. I am equally as effective as an advertisement in your local newspaper. That's what the research says. You move to a town and you look down. They used to have it in the back. Remember, these are the churches and their services. I am equally as effective as an advertisement in your local paper. That means you are the people that are called to seek and save the lost. And how do we do that? By asking, what do you need? Remember that old song, Andre Krauss, Jesus is the answer for the world today. Above him there's another, another, Jesus is the way. 
We are not offering the Messiah's hand to enough people, sometimes to any people. Response one is you could forget the story. Response two is you as a, a, a member of the family of God can reach out to those around you. And the third thing is this. Perhaps you are like the woman at the well, lonely, broken, lost, feeling you're stuck in the monotony of every day without any way to break it. And Jesus says, I have something for you. In fact, stick with me and you will never be spiritually thirsty again. As always at the singing of our last hymn, if you want to talk about what it would be to reach out to those around you, our deacons and pastors would love to pray with you. If you have come to the realization that you are stuck in this monotonous life, then you don't know how to break the pattern, but you know you're lost and alone. We would love to introduce you to the Savior of the universe. Come forward and we would love to pray with you. And of course, if you have a challenge or an issue for which you would like counsel and prayer, our pastors and deacons would love the opportunity to pray with you. You don't need to be at the well by yourself anymore. Amen.